finger or thumb there in Proverbs 12. got another finger, you could put it in 2 Kings 13. 1 Corinthians 10 and Philippians 3. Hey, I want to divide my time in half, and there's a reason for that. If you're a senior pastor, if you're a teaching pastor, you know that there are times where you can feel a real green light with your message. Sometimes it's like a yellow light, and you ask yourself Why? And after the fact, you realize there may be something else God wants to say. So I checked with Dave and I said, do I have your permission if I can teach at least half my time and then open up the second half of my time for like a Q&A thing? I have learned over the years being at pastor's conferences that sometimes my takeaway is not what was said here, but what was said there. And even though my schedule doesn't permit me to be with you the entire time, I'd certainly love to field this part of his flock for anything uh, that you might have on your heart or mind. So keep that in the back of your mind as we bring this to a slow, about midway point, and simply open it up for a time of question and answer. I will also provide the same access to a few of the guys that I came with. Um, I like to travel with somebody, and uh, this time, if uh, Jerry and Chet and Billy and Russ and Adonis, would you guys stand for a second and... uh, Chad, if you wouldn't mind, make your way all the way up because you've got a booth over here and I want to make sure that everybody knows what is made available. Billy, who's standing up with the blue uh, sweatshirt on, he's our young adults pastor. So if you're in young adult ministry and you see him and say, hey, how do you or why do you? Next to Billy is Jerry. Jerry is one of our campus pastors, so he has the senior pastor responsibility at a regional campus. Next to him is Adonis, and next to Adonis is Russ, and they're both a part of Patmos Reality Discipleship. Chet, come on up. Grab this mic for a minute if you don't mind. Tell us what Patmos Reality Discipleship is, because it's an opportunity for all of these pastors and lay leaders to get involved and make a difference in their 20-somethings. Hey, good morning, everybody. Uh, My name is Chet. Uh, I've had the privilege to uh, be at Calvary Fort Lauderdale for the last 24 years, and um, we realized a uh, great need to kind of make our our, our very uh, wonderfully blessed church um, uh, to uh, bring it down a little bit more to minister to 20-somethings uh, in a very small group setting. And so over the course of uh, four months, uh, in the spring and in the fall, we take about 25, 20-year-olds, uh, that 18 to 30-year-old uh, range, and have an opportunity to disciple them. We call it reality discipleship. It's a place of challenge for the purpose of change where we actually walk through the chronology of the life of Christ over the course of four months, but not just in the classroom, in the course of an experience. And so not only will the student experience, uh, I mean, be taught John chapter 4, they're going to experience John chapter 4 in like manner. And so we don't have any test or any fill in the blank or any bubbles. Everything that we do is a life test that they walk through. Some they're aware of, some they're not aware of. Um, the element of surprise is the best to teach someone flexibility. It's very easy to preach on flexibility, but on the other side, when you wake them up at four in the morning and send them on a mission trip in about an hour for ten days, uh, and they have no idea about it, it's an opportunity, uh, basically, to learn, are you truly flexible to the Spirit of the Lord? And so um, we're thankful to... uh, have this opportunity at Calvary Fort Lauderdale. Our booth is over here if you'd like to find out some more information. 
Can I give away a couple of the secrets without destroying it? Um, who's 20 in here? <laughs> yeah, please, okay. give a okay. couple away. A couple of them, for instance, you know, my sheep hear my voice. Uh, the kids get a sheep, a real live sheep, and uh, they live with that sheep. And they train that sheep to hear their voice. And it's an amazing thing when you give a 20-year-old, you know, this is your sheep. Really, my sheep. Yes, and you're going to live with it, and it's going to learn your voice. And the crazy thing about it on the compound that they use, I, I'll go and I see all these sheep, and then you see a 20-year-old. If you live with a sheep, and you care for the sheep, and you love on that sheep, it does hear your voice, and you can call it right out of the crowd. But some of these 20-year-olds, they don't, like, get into it. So their sheep is rebellious, and then they get mad, and it's like... Imagine that. Imagine having a rebel sheep, you know. It's one of the things they do, you know. So. Well, it's classic because they'll always say around day three, they'll come crying to me, I got me, this is me, you know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But the amazing thing is, is then we'll teach John chapter 10. And the idea of it is, is when they go to call their sheep, if they truly love their sheep, seriously, their sheep will, they'll call their sheep's name, their sheep will put their ears up like this and come running to their shepherd. It's a weird thing. And it's really weird. But then when you teach John chapter 10, it makes sense. And you understand through the illustration. And the idea is Hosea. We want to create living parables. Someone who experiences the word of God and is able to communicate it through their experience. And that's what wait, God wait, did with Hosea. Wait, you shouldn't. Don't skip well, the Hosea no, thing. Okay. Yeah, we don't have anyone marry a prostitute. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. No, it's not right. Yeah. Okay, there are some experiences in the Bible that we leave to the Hebrew prophets, okay? Yeah, okay. Chet, thank you very much. Glad you're here. Good. Yeah. Okay. I sent my daughter to that Patmos thing. Didn't expect that to happen. Matthew 6 will actually draw your attention to the last verse in 5, but it's the way to get you there. Let's together go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we give you thanks. This is so good of you on our behalf to gift us a carve away from the regular routine, a chance to truly, truly draw close with the hope of staying close because we need that, God. There are so many people watching us. There are so many people listening to us. And they believe that we have access, contact, connection. So we ask, may that in fact happen. Maybe so one with you that what you do through us is what you want to do in us. And you are glorified and we are blessed. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. It was 26 years ago, I actually believed, I actually thought, that all I really needed was permission. Yeah, if I could have permission from Costa Mesa to start this thing called Calvary Chapel Fort Lauderdale, well, 
It would only be a matter of time. So how did you then apply for affiliation? Well, 26 years ago, you simply made a phone call. And the man on the other end of the phone at Costa Mesa, John Hilton was his name, said, well, tell me a little bit about yourself. And I did. And he said, I believe Chuck would bless that. Why don't you go ahead and get started and let's see what happens. Well, but... I'm wondering, is there any way you could help? Is there anything that you could do? Well, what do you mean? Well, um, Fort Lauderdale is really far away from the west coast of the United States of America. There are not really any other Calvaries there. And uh, he made a comment somewhere along the line. Start a home Bible study. If it grows, you're a pastor. If it doesn't grow, quit. Okay, praise the Lord. All right, that's good. That's good. I like that. I think I just got permission. Okay, I'll do that. And in my mind, in my mind, well, in my mind, I believe that if I, now with permission, could hang that Calvary dove on a small space, any place, then that church would just begin to grow. And it would only be a matter of time, with permission and the dove, (laughs) we'd be packing them out, man. I just knew that. I just knew that Florida was hungry for a Calvary Chapel. And since there were no other Calvary Chapels there, man, this is it. This is it. I mean, I know pretty much all you need to know to have a Calvary Chapel. I know where God guides, God provides. I know that one. I know that one. Chuck, Chuck's always said where God guides, God provides. I know that one. I know blessed are the flexible. They shall not be broken. I know that one. I know that one. I got that one down. Um, I know to simply teach simply. I know that one. I, I pretty much know everything you need to know to have a Calvary Chapel. <laughs> I, know, I know it all, you know. Really, I do. And I have permission. And I have the dove. Okay, uh, it's time for me to get going because the minute I get there, I find a space, I put that dove up with everything I know, I will be, I will be filling stadiums very soon. I just know it. Three years later. I want to quit, man. I hate this. <sighs> Is nobody coming? They don't like me. I thought this would be different. I don't like this at all. Man, oh man, I thought, I thought. What did you think it was going to be? Did you have visions of grandeur? Did you assume by now you'd have? And it's just not exactly what you thought it would be. Well, how has that influenced or affected the way you do what you do? Was there a time in your journey where there was much more excitement and genuine enthusiasm, but as of late you've kind of slowed down and... Oh, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. Oh, well, I'm looking forward to that conference. <laughs> Every year I look forward to that conference. That's why I'm a pastor. Conferences. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, that sheep thing? No, a bunch of dumb sheep, silly bride. <laughs> no, I'm not into it for that. I like conferences. I like conference food. Why is the laugh there? There's a tendency in all of our hearts to, at some point, do the same thing 
and find ourselves doing the same thing, and then settle doing the same thing. And if there's one thing I'd pass along to you, because quite honestly, I understand in some ways the vibe of the Midwest, it's not to settle. It's to truly choose to improve, and it's to make what may be good excellent. Listen again, that's my goal in our time together. I would like you to look at whatever it is that you're doing and ask yourself, is that really, really what he wants you to do? Is there any way you could improve it? Is there any way you could do more? Is there any way that you can lift the level and move it from simply being good to really being great? You say, Bob, what do you mean you know the vibe here in the Midwest? Well, I grew up just outside of Detroit, and there was in my school a sense that you do just enough to get by because it's more about me than it is about we. You, if you can work at one of the major three auto companies on the line, you make just enough and you can retire and you can get a bass boat and a six-pack old Milwaukee every weekend and that's the good life. That's truly what I believed. And I would see a few of my friends, they'd get right out of high school, they'd get a job manufacturing, they'd get a job in industry, they'd get a job at some assembly scene, and that was their goal. Their goal was just to do enough. It was a nine-to-five attitude that said, this is when I start, this is when I stop, and you get nothing more from me. If I say it's a union spirit, I'm sure to get emails. The implications of what I'm hoping to say is that there is a tendency in all of our hearts to have that entitlement spirit. God, what are you going to do for me? And here's what I'm going to do, and here's what I do, and it just stops right there. Here's, here's what I do. I do two services a week. I, I prepare on Friday. I do my Bible study on Wednesday. I have a funeral. I have a wedding. And that's all I do. And, and it's almost like you get to that level where... But it's okay, isn't it? Bob, we don't live where you live. And we don't have your resources. And we don't do what you do. And ours is a different world than your world. Is that where we're left? With an excuse or a reason? And in other words, do you look on at somebody else's ministry and just determine that because you're in a different area than they're in, that's the way that it is here and where it is there, and you just look on and say, but that, that's not for me. But what is for you is my point. Scripture says it well. Jesus specifically, Matthew 5 and 48, we read, Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Will you circle the word for perfect and keep in mind that God is calling you to a higher standard and He's not going to let you settle with status quo? Can you comprehend that with this reference, God is going to always be moving you forward and there'll never be a time where you have the freedom in Christ to simply say, my foot is off the gas and I've determined it's wise to idle? Idle, are you serious? Your ministry, your life, is it idle right now? No, no, I, I don't see idle in the Scriptures. And I will really push the press on seeing retirement in the Scriptures as so many people understand retirement. Retire? 
No, no, no. As I understand the Scriptures, you've got to weigh with the Father, like Jesus, to get energy to go pour your life out into somebody else. And then you've got to weigh to get with the Father to get energy to go pour your life into somebody else. And if you have the joy of being retired from your regular routine, it's only to free yourself up with the kind of time that you love to use to pour into somebody else's life, but turn it off? I don't think we have the right or the privilege to turn it off. I am and I want you to be. I believe that God's intention is that we're always on for the glory of God. And we're always in to making disciples. So the implication, my friend, is simply this. When we take the time to say, God, you're not done and you're not settled... And you will not let me just rest in mediocrity. It's then where you're able to say, what is new and what is fresh? And what can I do different? And why would I do it different? Well, it has to do with those words. Excellence, improvement, and better. That's why Scripture says you shall be perfect, just as your Father in Heaven is perfect. I have, and you heard me say, a 15-year-old, 16-next-week-year-old son and a... 14 as of last week, your old daughter. And my daughter is very different from my son when it comes to work at school. She's the one who comes home immediately and before any snack or any milk. Oh, Dad, I've got three pages of homework and I have a little bit of math and I'm going to get them right done now. You know, she, she knows and she's got the binders and everything's got the color-coordinated thumbs and, okay, here's what I'm going to do. And she sits at the kitchen table. My son walks in. Son, you got homework? I don't know. I'm not really sure. Maybe, maybe I do. I don't, I don't know. Very different. Very, very different. So my daughter striving to success. My son, well, I, uh, here's what I'm thinking, Dad. If you're a pastor, and you know I'm going to be a pastor, I don't know that you really need to do all that, you know, book learning. <laughs> And in some part, he gets that from his old man because I still wonder why I have to know what the Northwest Passage is. And in other words, in the 1600s, they moved goods from Africa to North America. And now my son knows how they got from there to here. And I'm going, why? Why does he need to know that? When will he use that? Jeopardy? I don't know that he'll ever end up on Jeopardy. I scratch my head from time to time. So what, what is that all about? Here's what it's all about. It's all about him being made perfect. And what I've always said to him, being very different than what I say to my daughter, son, listen, if, if you do your best and you get a C, I'll be very proud of you getting a C. But if you don't do your best and you settle with a C, I'll be very disappointed. Let me say that to you. If you've got 100 people and you're supposed to have 100 people and you're working very hard and you've got 100 people, praise God you've got 100 people. But what if God wants you to have 200 and you've settled at 100? I don't know how many come to our church. Every once in a while somebody says, boy, this must make you feel satisfied serving the Lord in this church. I don't know if it makes me feel satisfied. Maybe I'm supposed to have a bigger church than the one we already have. And I'm actually a miserable failure. And you're looking on going, oh, Bob, look. And God's going, no, I'm not proud of that. He could do a whole lot more. And he's just kind of in idle mode. What is it that you do? How far have you gotten? Who's going to push you a little further? How will you actually get to your goal? He says, be perfect even as your Father in Heaven is perfect. 
If you will cross-reference that fact to this fact, in Mark 10 and 13, you know the conversation. One thing you lack. One thing you lack. What's that? You don't need to turn there. He's saying to someone who thinks they've got it all together, no, there's still something missing. And I want to say to you that if there's even one thing missing, God is using this conference to have you look at the one thing that's missing and you go, you know what, here's how I could do whatever it is I'm doing with more excellence, with greater improvement, even better than I used to do it before. Whatever it is. Why do I have this passion for excellence or improvement or better? I, uh, I want you to turn with me to Proverbs chapter 12. And I want you to note with me the first couple of verses here. We read in Proverbs 12 and 1, Whoever loves instruction loves knowledge, but he who hates correction is... Yeah, that's the S word in my house. Verse 2, A good man obtains favor from the Lord, but a man of wicked intentions he will condemn. Now I want to pick this apart just for a moment. Again, the first half of that first verse, Whoever loves instruction loves knowledge, but he who hates correction is stupid. I don't know how many times I've come to this word and discovered that there's still one thing I lack. One thing I lack. One thing I lack. One thing I lack. The implications of the text are clear. If you're not interested in growing, then you're not interested in knowing what one thing you lack. But if you want to discover that one thing you lack and take what is lacking and make it more, what will happen? You'll be open to the opportunity to change the thing you're doing and not assume that it's already the best thing you could do. Now, when we move into the second verse, good man is a relative term. Because understand, there are no good men. Who are you calling good? There's only one good that's God. So the term implies that whatever you are, you can be new and improved. You know that if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is past. All things become new. Is that just at the point of conversion? No, that's not at the point of conversion alone. That's something that's supposed to be happening in our life every single day. In another way, I'm becoming new and improved Bob. So he says, a man of good intentions, what will happen? He says he's going to have favor from the Lord. In other words, if you come to a conference and you say, I am here to learn, and I brought a blank pad, and I'm going to write down every thought, and I'm gathering information because I want to do this thing that I do even better. He says, you know what? Let me tell you what's going to happen. You will obtain favor from me. He said, but wicked intentions... What is a wicked intention? I think a wicked intention is wanting to be in the ministry for all the wrong reasons. And let me tell you something. There was a time in the history of Calvary Chapel where it was a little easier to be a self-appointed, self-anointed senior pastor. Where you could find a place, a space like I did and say, Hey, Chuck, what do you think? And Pastor Jack said, Go for it. And next thing you know, you're in charge of people. And because you have this position, senior pastor, you're telling them what to do. And what is your intention? You 
maybe didn't do well in the real world, but this is a way through tithes and offerings that you can go ahead and make your mortgage payment. And if there's a little extra, you can get by because you enjoy the power of telling other people what to do. That is a wicked intention. Notoriety is a wicked intention. Fame is a wicked intention. So, if you're a note taker, consider this with me when it comes to excellence. There is a way that God will purify your motivation, point number one, in becoming more excellent what you do because excellence and success are not synonymous. I'm not talking success. I'm talking excellence. And the difference between the two is everything that you do for the glory of God or for the glory of man. I know guys that are burdened about seeing their churches grow for only one reason, so they can get on a list and everyone can see their name on the list is higher than another man's name on the list. And every year there's a magazine that is sent out. We're the largest churches in the United States. And I've determined it's time for me to take my name off of that list. Why? Because I know what it does to a wicked heart. It either makes you feel more successful, oh, look how high I am, or what are they doing under me? <laughs> Obviously not what I'm doing, but what are they doing ahead of me? Obviously more than I'm doing. And there you are right in the middle, and God's saying, why are you comparing yourself to somebody else? How about doing for me what I want you to do and purify your motivation? Now, it's a strange thing, this subject of motivation, because, quite honestly, some of us came to Christ with the wrong motivation. What do you mean? I don't want to go to hell. Anyone want to go to hell in this room? No. So all you have to do is hear a Bible study about hell and damnation. You go, I don't want to go there. I want to go to heaven. Why? Because you love Jesus? No, I just don't want to be burnt forever. Okay, we now understand your motivation. Well, what if you start with poor motivation and you continue with poor motivation and everything's still about you? God says that's a wicked intention. In contrast to the man with a good heart or a good disposition who is going to obtain favor because he's interested in knowing more and doing more because he wants to give God glory. You don't need to turn there, but listen to this. First Chronicles 22 and 14. Indeed, I've taken much trouble to prepare for the house of the Lord 100,000 talents of gold, a million talents of silver, and bronze and iron beyond measure, for it's so abundant. I've prepared timber and stone also that you may add to them. Moreover, there are workmen with you in abundance, woodsmen and stone cutters, all types of skillful men for every kind of work of gold and silver and bronze and iron. There is no limit. Arise and begin working. May the Lord be with you. In a newer translation, Listen, son, you've got 4,000 tons of gold and you've got 40,000 tons of silver. Why? Because I want to do something for the Lord. And cost is not an issue. I'll give everything I can to God. And when it comes to this excellence, this improvement, this more thing in your life, when God is purifying your motivation, at some point in time you'll go, I am writing the study for Jesus. You're not thinking about who's coming or if anyone is coming. Because obviously there are times here in the Midwest where based upon the conditions of the outside climate, you can adjust your study time. 
If there's a big snowstorm coming and you already know, you'll be the one shoveling and the same four people that were there last week will be the same four people next week. You go, I'm not going to study that much. I know who these people are. So is the study for the people or the study for the Lord? Well, it's for the Lord. Really? Motivation check. Well, I guess if somebody famous with a lot of money showed up, I'd want to do a better job. Really? But if the same dumb poor people that came last week come this next week, you're not going to do that? Same good job. You, you see what happens in our lives? I mean, I remember preparing for my first pastor's conference. And because I had the responsibility to teach pastors, it was like, I didn't sleep the night before. No, 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 no. I'm teaching at a pastor's conference, and I stayed up the whole night going through every single point. And I'm laying in my hotel room, and I'm thinking about every point because I'm teaching at a pastor's conference, and the pastors will be listening to me as other pastors listening to other pastors. I'm even practicing my gestures. Yes, well, the other day I was thinking. <laughs> Calm, peace, lift your eyes, smile. And, you know... And I'm going through everything. Well, you finally don't wake up the day before your chance to speak at a conference because you didn't sleep. And there you are just all, now you need coffee so you're wired. And then you finally get in front of everybody and scare. God knocks on your heart. What's the deal, Bob? Oh, I really worked hard for pastors. You ever worked that hard for the people? No, they're just the people that come to the church. <laughs> If I was asked to speak to pastors, I'd really study hard, but I'm just talking to the regular people. It's my wife, a couple of cousins, a few folks from down the block. <laughs> Maybe the reason it's just your wife and a couple of cousins and a few people down the block is because you don't study the way you'd study if it was for a pastor's conference. Remember the early days? We started our services in a funeral home. And if you don't know that that's where Calvary Chapel started, it was weird. We had no sound system, but there was this big tape machine that played in a loop funeral music. <laughs> but if you didn't have it on, it was just like dead air, you know? Literally, dead air. And Pastor Fidel and I would stand and we'd look at the doorway and the car would pull up. It's like... There's somebody coming, there's somebody coming, there's somebody coming. They're here, they're here. And then I'd start looking at my notes again. Okay, practice this. 26 years ago, I remember. I actually believed. I remember. I was thinking. Okay, go over to here. They are. Do I still get as excited? It's one thing for somebody to show up at your church one time. They're just checking you out. If they come back, they come back. Do you know what an honor it is? They're coming back. They wake up on Sunday morning and drive to hear you talk. Wow. <laughs> motivation check. But not just motivation check. I want you to understand that some of what's supposed to happen has everything to do with who you are. When I use the word excellent or improvement or better... As you leave Proverbs, go with me this time, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and look at one verse and one verse alone. Because in the context of the verse, you'll understand the second point. 
I believe that the thing you do is supposed to influence the everything you are. And the way that it reads here, 1 Corinthians 10 and 31, is this, Therefore, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Now stay with me. I will not be judged just simply for the pulpit ministry. I will be judged for the whole of who I am. Now when it comes to the whole of who I am, I'm a husband, I'm a father, I'm a pastor, I'm an employer. An employer? Yeah, we have employees. How good an employer am I? I'll be judged for that. Now, the reason I say whatever you do, what happens is that we tend to, as pastors, focus upon the weekend. It's all about the weekend, baby. And make sure that Bible study is the best Bible study. And you want to make sure that those sheep are the most loved and best fed. And when the focus is there and there alone, listen to me. Sadly, sometimes when the focus is just there, you begin to let go of the focus in the other places where God sometimes is judging with more analytical, careful, calculating judgment. Think of Eli. Think of a guy who was... in incredible authority, amazing position, but he failed miserably as a father. Now the guys I was with, we were talking about this this morning, about breakfast, and uh, somebody made the comment, well don't forget man, the guy was huge. And I said, huge? I don't remember huge. And I looked it up just to refresh my memory, and the Bible uses the word heavy. That he was leaning on his chair, you know, and the ark of the Lord had been taken captive. And as he's kind of leaning back, he finds out that the ark had been taken captive. And what happens? You know the story. He leans back too far. Now, my mom and most of my teachers always told me not to do that. You don't lean back in your chair. But if you're really, really overweight, what happens? Well, he leans back in his chair and when he goes down, he snaps his neck. Because he was so, and here's the word in the Hebrew, so kabod. Kabod, is that the word that's used? Yeah. Now, some of you students of the scriptures know kabod. That's that glory word. But listen to this. It can be used in one of two ways. In the one way, it can be weight or substance of who you are that's a really, really good thing. On the other hand, however, it can be weight and substance of who you are as a really bad thing. So he was literally a very heavy guy. And as he is not caring for himself, as he's thinking only about the priesthood, if he's not caring for his kids, what happens? It now becomes Ichabod. The glory has departed. He shifted the weight of God for the weight in his body. And because he wasn't careful to look at all areas of his life, he failed miserably. Let me say to you, I don't care how good you are here. It's how good you are there at your house. And sometimes God's saying, no, no, I can't add to your church. You're a bad dad. What do you mean? I'm doing a great job with Bible study. I'm not really paying attention to your Bible studies right now. I just can't have more people come to your church and see the poor example of a father you are. I don't think, Bob, this is, you're supposed to be talking about Bible studies and pastors and making me a better preacher. Not about being a dad or being a husband, or being a friend, or being a nice guy to the rest of the guys that are surrounding you to do ministry? Let me say quite sincerely, I'm so honored 
that I have had guys with me now 20 years and 18 years and 24 years. How does that happen? Well, you have to do something with that part of your life to keep them around you. Otherwise, what happens? There's this constant rotation, and the rotation of the leaders lends itself to saying to the congregation, I'm sorry, you're not somebody everybody wants to trust. Why? Well, because we don't understand what's happening at your leadership level. It's one thing to have your occasional Judas. It's a whole other thing to have a revolving door at the top. When anyone gets close to you, they find out who you really are and what you're really made of. Don't let that happen. How do you not let that happen? I did a really bizarre thing this last couple of months that I'd never done before. And I even was challenged by doing it. Because when somebody said, hey, would you think about doing this? I go, I don't know if I'd do that. That's just not very Calvary. What did I do? I took a survey of the staff and asked them, like, a hundred questions to find out what the condition of the staff was. Now you go, what do you mean it's not very Calvary? Well, it seemed a little weird that I'd ask them questions and, well, wait a minute. Seems a little weird if you'd ask them questions. Doesn't the Bible say that you're supposed to know the condition of your flock? That's the Bible. Okay, well, if your immediate flock is your staff, when's the last time you checked with them to see how you're doing? Now, it was completely anonymous, and that was the weird thing. And we've got on staff about 720-something people, so I send out this survey, and here comes all the response back, and here's what I discover. I discover in a couple of pockets, the response was slow. Our school employees were not responding as quickly as our church employees were responding. And automatically I'm tipped off and somebody says to me, some of the school folks are a little afraid about being really honest with the survey because they don't want to get in trouble. Trouble for what? And immediately my antenna I are up. Wait, wait a minute, how are we doing this? When all the survey results came back, here's what we found. We found that they had incredible love for their job. They had incredible relationship with others. Our weak points, we found out we were not communicating effectively what we were doing to the general staff. We also found that they, many of them felt like they weren't encouraged enough. And I thought, whoa. <laughs> so I took the opportunity, the last staff, and I go, guys, here's what I found out. I found out these things are really good about how I do ministry. These things are not so good about how we do ministry, and I want to improve that. So let me right off the top say that I love you all very much and you know, I try to encourage them and let me tell you with you some of the things I'm doing and I want to make that better. Why? Because someday I'm going to stand before Jesus and it won't be just how well I did this, it will be how well I did that and I don't want to blow it. I don't want to make any mistakes. Have you ever thought about gathering together with your leadership or some of those closer guys and saying, how am I doing me? For you. Where do I blow it? Where do I make this? If they're afraid to tell you, let me tell you something. There's something wrong. And I say that there could be improvement because it's supposed to affect everything you do. Let me, as a third point, invite you to go to 2 Kings chapter 13. 2 Kings 13. And I want you to see a story. We'll read it through and then I'll make a comment. 2 Kings 13 and 14. Elijah had become sick with an illness with which he would die. That doesn't sound very positive, does it? 
Then Joash, the king of Israel, came down to him. There's still a lot of people turning pages. Let's check that table of contents really quick for uh, 2 Kings 13. Now, I want you to see this. Verse 15, chapter 13, 2 Kings. And Elijah said to him, Take a bow and some arrows. So he took himself a bow and some arrows. Then he said to the king of Israel, Put your hand on the bow. So he put his hand on it. And Elijah put his hands on the king's hands. And then he said... Open the east window, and he opened it, and then Elisha said, shoot, and he shot, and he said, the arrow of the Lord's deliverance, and the arrow of deliverance from Syria, for you must strike the Assyrians at Aphek till you've destroyed them. And then he said, take the arrows, so he took them, and then he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground, so he struck three times, and he stopped. And the man of God was angry with him and he said, you should have struck five or six times then you would have struck Syria until you destroyed it. But now you will strike Syria only three times. And Elijah died. Your attention please. I have in my mind's eye kind of a Lord of the Rings scene if you can imagine those characters, those colors. And I see this ancient wise man saying to the young, yes, student, Take a bowl. He grabs the bowl. Put it in my hands. And now it's one of those, like, the young student is supposed to put his arm around the old sagacious man's chest. And as he pulls it back, he pulls it back. Are you ready? Ready. He steadies his hands. Victory. Deliverance. Take the bowls. Strike them! And here's the young student. Okay, this is kind of dumb. What is this? I don't like this. And right then, this old wise guy, he looks and he goes, Where's your moxie? That's not in the text. Where's your guts? Where's your drive? Where's your passion? You know what? You only banged the arrows three times. You'll only be successful three times, but you should have banged it six or seven or ten. What's the matter with you, kid? Ah, I'm a prophet. I can't hit you. (laughs) I got a different car recently. I decided to pass my last car on to my son. Had a lot of miles on it. It's probably eight years old. And I said to my son, hey, that's yours. Oh, that's great. (laughs) Well, it's been sitting in my driveway. I'm paying minimum insurance on it for the last three months. And he finally decides to approach me and says, I'm not really that into that car. (laughs) Well, that's obvious. So what do you mean? I said, I haven't seen you wash it. I haven't seen you like get into it. I haven't seen you like like when I was a kid, the whole idea of driving and my first car was like shine it and you know, anytime, hey, why don't you wash the car? Ah, here we go. That, that whole thing. How about your studies? How about your life? How about your wife? How about your kids? Is the gusto gone? Are you expecting God to pour out great favor in your city on those people? But in your heart? 
You know, I've never fallen asleep while I've been preaching. I've seen people fall asleep while I've been preaching. But I've never fallen asleep while I've been preaching because I'm into it. I'm into my study. It's like, look at this, and you've got to see this, and this is really great, and I've, I've never seen this before. I was talking this morning about this with a few of my friends, and they said this. I'm into it. Are you into it? If you're still questioning whether or not you're called, and you expect your people to follow, why would they follow somebody that still lives life with a question mark? Uh, it's not very good today. You've heard me teach this before, but let's give it a try. Do you know what it means to wing it? Do you know where the word or phrase wing it comes from? Listen to this. There was a star of the show, and then there was an understudy. And the understudy was supposed to know everything the star of the show knew. But if, in fact, the star of the show got sick, fatigued, couldn't do what they were expected to do, the understudy now takes the lead. But nearby, there will be, in the wing, someone with the script, waiting, ready, listening to that understudy. Now, the understudy is, Hark! (laughs) Winging it. It's right there in the wing. Right there in the wing. Right there in the wing is your next line. Now, some of us as pastors think that in... Our experience with the flock, there's that reference in the word. Hey, when you speak before kings and governors, don't worry about what you're going to say. The minute you stand, I'll give you words. And there you are, waiting for the wings of the Spirit to speak to you. God, are you up there? I didn't have any time to prepare, but you know, it's just my wife and a couple of cousins and some neighbors And I've read this chapter before and I listened to Chuck in the 5,000 series and I'm just thinking that... And you want people to continue to come back for that. Remember, it's a spiritual diet. And if your wife's been cooking the same food for how many years... And you see, hey, here it is. And you go, I like it. Been eating it 28 years. trying to be really nice right now for those of you who have special recipes that you think everyone likes. Because nobody was ever honest with you. It's what happens. It's what happens. Because I'll go over people in the church for dinner and the, hu- the wife will, will bring it out and the husband will kind of give me a look like, don't say nothing. And it's like, hey... And then she'll make a comment, something like, he loves this dish. It's his favorite. He always asks that I make it for company. That's not true. He's lying to you. This is horrible. He just doesn't know how to tell you. This is like, like, dog, I don't understand why. Here's the question I'll always ask. Would somebody pay for it? Otherwise, people go, oh, look how many people come to your church. Yeah, it's free. Of course they come to this church. It's free. You don't have to pay. If I was charging $65 a ticket for every seat, nobody would show up. 
I mean, pace to come. No, no, no. It's, that's the difference. There are how many people that show up at the dolphin game and you know they're going to lose and then you go, wait a minute, you paid for that. I don't mean it that way because I have friends that play the game. I just mean it's time for some Q&A. Here, here's what I want to say. Conferences have always been pivotal in my life. Whether I'm speaking at them or attending. Because what I love to do is get together with other guys and say, what are you doing? And I want to rework and rethink how I do what I do. Why? Because someday, I'll stand before my maker, and I want to hear him say, and I said it last night, well done, good and faithful servant. Well done. Well, you did that really, really well. Not you did it mediocre. Not you did it status quo. Not you did it with lackadaisical, I don't care who shows up and who's coming. No, I, I want to do this thing really, really good. And I pray that if there's something that you're doing right now and you go, you know what, here's what I could do and here's what I used to do and I used to get a little... Come on back to that. Because if you've been doing the same thing for a long time in the same way and it's become a little boring to you, trust me, it's become a little boring to that flock that shows up every single week and they're praying for you that while you're gone, something happens. (laughs) They really are. Because they call me and they say, hey, my pastor's at the conference. Tell them, stop serving the same old slop. No, they don't say it that way. They just say, encourage him. Let's shift the Q&A for a few and uh, let me encourage you to uh, ask whatever may be on your heart or mind. Let's just uh, have you, we didn't do the whole, give me the questions first. I can sift out the bad ones from the good ones. This may come back to kick me, but let's try. Anybody got a question? Come on, don't be shy. You go, hey, I want to know how you do this. Or, hey, when did you guys learn to do that? Or, well, that one thing you do, I think it's dumb. Whatever it is. Come on. Okay, well, that wraps it up. We're good. (laughs) Yes, right there. Do you rehearse your jokes? Do I rehearse my jokes? (laughs) No. Most of them I don't know I'm telling. No, and, you know, but I will address that. I have a sense of humor, and I've always had a sense of humor. I pray to God I never become a joke teller. Because I think if you actually plan a joke and you go, oh, this will be really funny right here, then it sounds like shtick. You know, it sounds like da-da-da-da-da-da-da. I have a sense of humor, and I don't think that's a bad thing if, in fact, I deliver enough truth with my humor. I think if it's just humor at some point in time, it is more entertaining than it is exhortive or educational, and I don't want to make that mistake. Sometimes when I'm at pastor's conferences, though, I have a little bit more fun at somebody else's expense. Um, <laughs> when I'm in the pulpit, I'm working through a book. I feel a little bit more responsibility because most of you can feed yourselves. You came here to be inspired or encouraged, so uh, telling jokes, um, having a sense of humor, I pray they're two different things. Good question. Anybody else? Yeah. That's a really, really good question, and if you didn't hear this question, how does this campus thing work, and why not send pastors? Um, There'll be a couple of things that I'll say that may sound um, prideful or arrogant, and I apologize for that to to start with my answer. I'm just saying it in in an honest way. I loathed the idea of having regional campuses. 
I didn't like the idea. And I said to our guys before we even started to pursue it, we are not going to do that. That's absurd. What happened, however, is as our church continued to grow, we were looking for places for people to be a part of our church services. And one of the things we did, very similar to one of the things that Costa Mesa does, is that the main service, the larger of the four, we moved them into a gymnasium and a big screen came down and they watched on a screen on our property. Well, somebody made the comment, if they're driving all the way here and they're going into another room watching on a screen, why wouldn't you let them watch the screen without driving all the way here? Okay, well, as the church continues to grow, some of you don't know, we had determined to build a brand new big sanctuary. And the more we thought about how much it would cost for us to build a sanctuary, my goal was very simple. I wanted to continue to expand the work of Calvary Chapel Fort Lauderdale. There were enough people coming to our church to hear what was being taught from our pulpit. So how do I expand the work, not spend $40 million on a new sanctuary, but still allow the people who wanted to come to Calvary Fort Lauderdale to have the Calvary Chapel Fort Lauderdale experience? So somebody told me about Andy Stanley doing a campus. I flew up to his Buckhead location and I showed up there and watched him on an HD screen. It wasn't the screen experience, it was the congregation. I hung out with the congregation and here's what I discovered. These people had a greater sense of community in a smaller atmosphere than they did at the big church. So now I'm going, wait a second, I've got people driving all the way to Fort Lauderdale, watching in a gymnasium, and I think I'm okay with that. But this church seems to be very, very healthy. Now I'm talking to the Sunday school teachers, I'm talking to the worship kids, I'm, worship, I'm talking to the campus pastor. And I said, how does this work? And he said, this is an amazing thing. He said, we have a greater level of volunteer, we have a greater level and sense of community here than the big church does. Because quite honestly, when you're seeding what we seed at the big church, at some point it's a little less personal than it would be at a smaller location. So then I go, well... I'm still a little opposed to it because we have some really good pastors that I want to groom to have their own church. But we've done that several times. And we've even broken the rule of a five-mile distance. We have a Calvary Chapel in Deerfield that's a guy from our staff. That's three miles away, and he started that church. We have a Calvary Chapel in Pompano Beach that's two miles away, and he started a church. So we're having more pastors go out and start things, but there's still people coming to our church, and I don't want to build the $40 million sanctuary. So long story short, there was a church in Boca Raton, had a pastor, and we all know that the body of Christ has some pastors that are really, really, really great pastors but being prepared to teach a Bible study every single week, they love caring for the flock. They love ministering. They love hospital visitation. They love making sure that somebody gets a meal. They, well, there's a group of pastors like that out there that don't want to have to feel the need to every week preach. I have that spirit. In other words, if you could just let me care for the body, I'd love to care for the body. Every week, twice a week, I have this thing called preaching that gets in the way of what I really want to do. Now, there are other pastors like that. So, there was a church in Boca Raton. They only had like 40 people going. And the pastor was frustrated. He was there for 10 years. And I came to him and I said, could we rent your building to try this satellite thing? And he said, rent it? He said, I'll give it to you. He said, I know Calvary Chapel, Fort Lauderdale. He said, I would love to see people coming to this church. Well, we prayed it through. 
He didn't give it to us, but he sold it to us for a fraction of the cost of his property. So he's on a $10 million property with a full-size church. We put Sunday school teachers who live in Boca Raton there in their own backyard. We put worship people that live in Boca right there. Jerry, the senior pastor equivalent, is right there. He loves those people. He cares for those people. Those people see him as their pastor. But every week after the worship, a screen comes down, and the people that used to end up in the gymnasium at Fort Lauderdale are now watching on a screen at Boca. Well, now there's there's 3,000 people that show up there every week. Jerry, how many services do you have? Five. Five services every weekend at the Boca location. And people show up. But the sense of community, if they have a need, Jerry's going to love on them, he's going to marry them, he's going to bury them, the same way an associate pastor would at the Fort Lauderdale campus. I am not doing all the weddings anyway. I'm not doing all the funerals anyway. So they've already got an associate pastor. They were coming to hear the Bible study taught. So if, in fact, you have another location and a screen comes down, they have a sense of community, there's a sense of church there, they feel like they're really loved on connected because he's their guy, I'm simply their teacher. And so when that happened so successfully, it was like, we expanded the church and it didn't cost us much of anything. Well, there was another church that we were providing pulpit ministry for in Plantation. The pastor died a year before. And they came to us and said, we saw the thing you guys did in Boca. And we were wondering if you'd do the same thing with us. Well, same situation. Four million dollar property. They owed about $750,000. We went ahead and assumed that and now there's two, 3,000 people attending the plantation campus. But it has its own senior pastor equivalent. It has people from our children's ministry. It has a worship team. But the screen comes down and I'm still the teacher. Well, we've done that now five times and we're ready to do that a sixth time. So the church has continued to expand numerically. Everyone has a sense of community. They feel like they're really being loved on by the senior pastor. But listen to this. We're still starting churches. We have a next-gen group that is all determined to be a part of our church team for over a year, and then after that year, they want to go start a church someplace. So, we think we're doing it the way that we feel that God has called us to do it, and this last uh, January, when Pastor Chuck came to town, because I knew it was a little controversial around Calvary Circles, I explained the whole thing to him, and I said, Chuck, I don't know how you feel but this is what we're doing with regional campuses, and I want your real honest opinion. So I told him the story similar to what I just told you. At the very end of the conversation, he said, wow, it doesn't sound like... And here's the thing he's burdened about, and here's the thing I'm worried about. I'm worried about guys expanding their churches for the purpose of expanding their churches and seeing satellite campuses as a a program for growth. Ours did not happen with the intention to build a bigger church. Ours happened to try and meet the needs of the people who are already coming to our church. So now at 1015, I still have six, seven hundred people in overflow at the Fort Lauderdale campus. But now I have six other locations or five other locations where they're still going and they're still being fed. So I accomplished my objective without spending the $40 million. Everyone still calls the church their church, but I haven't had to spend the kind of money or the kind of energy in everyone that's used. Think about it. I now have how many different worship bands at how many different locations. I have how many different Sunday school teachers at different locations. So the thing has worked very well for us. The next day Chuck called me. And he said, I know that you were looking for an answer from me on that whole satellite campus thing. And I want to tell you myself, I think the way you have done it is the right way to do it. 
And in a sense, saying, you got my Costa Mesa, amen. And I was thankful for that because I was really burdened. Guys, listen. I don't want to add one single person to the flock at Calvary Fort Lauderdale that doesn't belong there. My background is promotion and marketing. I know how you can use that stuff for your own demise and for your own destruction. I never ever want to have it said that I did something to make people come to the church. But at the same time, I do not want it to be said that there were people coming to our church and I felt so satisfied that I finally came to the place where if they come, they come. If they don't, they don't. And I basically forced people into other congregations because I didn't accommodate them. Because let me tell you who's waiting for them. Jehovah's Witnesses will give them a sense of community. The Mormons will give them a sense of community. There are cults out there that will give them a sense of community. And I would rather have someone appear to me or, 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 or feel like I'm doing it not so right in their mind. I still have responsibility before God and I want to make sure that I don't miss that. So I hope that explanation helps. Long one. Okay. But a good question. Very good question and answer it once. Yeah. I think that's why we're here, and I think that's why God allowed there to be a Q&A. Because with this Q&A, we are able to hear your heart. And here's what I heard you just say to all of us. Guys, you can improve your love quotient at the local congregational level. Here's what I know. When we reached the 200 mark, people coming to church, I remember standing in front of the congregation and saying, well, look out here. There's 200 people now coming to Calvary Fort Lauderdale. And afterwards, somebody walked up to me and said, and yes, this is my last week here. And I said, what do you mean? I like a smaller church. I like a more intimate congregation. You're not going to know my name. And I know you're just going to get busy. And you're not going to... And I'm thinking, how dare you? How dare you? In other words, the church was big enough when you were welcomed, but have anybody else come in and now you're done? No, 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 no. The cry of the Lord's heart is that all would be saved. All would be saved. And I know that our church has become kind of a saving station in our community. If they get saved there, they go someplace else. As long as it's a healthy church, I don't mind. But that's my cry to you 
The guy with the, hey, why do you do regional campuses? Years ago, John Corson challenged me. He said, because I said to him, I was trying to be real like magnanimous and very, very generous. And I go, John, I'm thinking about an idea. I'm thinking about getting a few guys from our area to come to a Wednesday night. And I introduce other pastors to our church and encourage them, because we've grown, to go to other churches. And John said, how dare you? And I go, what do you mean? He goes, if God brought them to you, he brought them to you for a reason. He didn't bring them to those other guys. And let me say that to you. If God is bringing you needy people, if you are putting them in other churches, and the other churches are not meeting that need, it may be an opportunity for you to meet that need. If you can't meet that need, I would say pick five guys, spend time with them, Identify those churches as churches who are open to those people and spend enough time so that they're prepared to receive them. Because we have groups of rehab people coming and people from this alcoholics thing and when they show up, they show up sometimes in uniform where they're wearing the colors of coming out of some kind of prison scene. And oh, how I pray that our church is prepared to receive them and welcome them. If they're not, whoever the senior pastor is here, you need to prepare your church for growth. Even when you give an invitation and you go, I can't give invitations like you give an invitation, Bob, because I know everybody in the room. Well, that's when I started doing it. I started giving invitations when I looked at, the room was about like this. And I looked and I go, God put this on my heart. I saw Greg Laurie do it. I'm going to go ahead and give an invitation. I know everyone here. Everyone's already saved. No one's going to get saved. I know I'm supposed to do this. And I go, if you don't know the Lord today, and I'm thinking, this is insane. Everyone knows the Lord. And I did it. And one person got up and walked forward and I went, it's working. It's working. But here's what really worked. What really worked is the congregation began to believe that this was the place to bring people because I told them I was going to do this every week. I said, every week I'm going to present the gospel. You bring people here and this will be the place where people can get saved. Well, if you're going to do that, then we're going to do that. But if you're not going to do it, we won't bring them anyway because we know that that's not going to happen. Aha! You mean I'm supposed to lead? Oh, now I understand. I got away from it for a little while. And three years ago, I was up at the Cove and I went to Billy Graham's library and I'm watching this thing, this display of who he is. And I go, you know what? Shame on me. I've gotten away from preaching the gospel at the close of all the services. And I came back and I said, guys, listen, here's what we have that nobody else has. The blood of Jesus Christ. We have salvation. It's great. I'll be declaring the good news of Jesus Christ at every service. I got away from it. I want to remind you of that because I want you to bring lost people here because this is where they're going to get saved. The church applauded. And once again, we got back to that whole saving souls thing and we're doing it again. So I'd say your exhortation. No, no, no. You only get one question. Okay, let's go to somebody else. Yeah, right here. Can I talk about the Love Out Loud ministry? Yeah, really quickly. I can. Oh, you know what? I'll have to talk. Yeah, I'll do this one. Because you know we are at a time and I'm starting to take out time. I didn't realize it. Love Out Loud is a once every couple of months I encourage the entire church to do something in our community. But what we do is behind the scenes prepare with a variety of opportunities so that when they come into the sanctuary we identify poverty, sorrow. Chat, what are the other ones? Bondage and suffering. So we think in those words, and that comes from Luke chapter 4, He has come, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, He's anointed me to preach the good news. So we've identified four things. Poverty, bondage, yes. And then we identify those needs. So it's convalescent center, it's uh, free car wash for evangelism, it's 
and everyone takes a task and does it. And uh, they've been highly successful in motivating everyone to be involved because sometimes you can have a church that so many things go on, not everyone's involved in the one thing, so we determined that would be the one thing everyone would get involved in, and it's really worked out well. So we're here. We're going to be here for a while. So if you guys got more questions, we'll do that. But thank you very much for your time. Hope the Q&A thing didn't bother you. Thank you very much. I think... Dave, are we, dismi- are we dismissed then, or you got housekeeping things? Yeah, we'll take a break. We were going to go till 10.30, but we'll, at quarter till, show up, and we'll start again. We're going to have Mike and Sandy. This is something new for us, and we're blessed to have them. So Bob's going to be around for a bit. He's going to have to leave oh, some around the lunch hour. So if you have questions, be sure to get with Bob. And, uh, but last night, somebody handed me this. Does anybody recognize this? looks like a cam digital quarter. Okay, it's yours. Okay, I'll get it to you. Oh, well then, yeah, this one. Okay, this is... Was that Bob over there? I can't see for the glow. Those Florida guys, you can't trust them. Hey, why don't we take a break? We'll be back in 15 minutes.